0: Hi guys, Greg Boyd here, Senior Pastor of Woodland Hills Church, and I still kind of got that sexy Barry White voice thing going on because I'm still hacking at night. It's going on four weeks. Pray for me because this is ridiculous. I went to the doctor and I don't have bronchitis or anything, but anyways, if I go into a phlegm spaz, forgive me. But I'm the Senior Pastor of Woodland Hills Church, and I I just wanted to give you an official update uh, on our 2019 Sustain campaign and let you know how we did uh, with our goal of getting 400 sustainers. I don't know when you'll be listening to this, but Right now, it's the morning of Sunday, May 28th, and we're up to 398. So either we came this close to the goal, or more likely, maybe a few more people will sign up and we'll meet our goal by this much. Either way, I just want to thank all of you again for your generous support for our ministry. You guys are one of the main reasons that we're able to offer our sermons to free to people around the world. I just want to thank you all again for your generous support of our ministry. You guys are one of the main reasons we're able to offer our sermons for free for people around the world. Uh, you, can look, you can look for your 2019 or t-shirts. Uh, they'll be in the mail in the next few weeks. We'll be ordering them really soon. Now that we know everyone's sizes and stuff like that, we really appreciate you sustainers. But whether or not you're a financial supporter of our ministry, thank you so much for tuning in. Having this kind of impact and helping spread this Jesus-looking kingdom is so very humbling and encouraging. We love you guys. It's truly an honor to have a voice in your lives. God bless. Uh, oh, I, I want to say thanks to, to, to Dan and Dave for doing such a great job the last couple of weeks. We're, it's, we're so blessed to have uh, teachers like this. Amen. I especially appreciate Dan last week kind of coming in on the fly because I was uh, hacking. The last no, more than four weeks now, I've had this hack. and they, I went to the doctor. It's not bronchitis or pneumonia, so, but it's just a pernicious thing. It's, 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 have others had this thing go on for three or four weeks? They say it's kind of going around a lot, but I'm on the mend. I'm coming back, it, it's, but, but I'm on the mend. And so I can't, can't guarantee that we're going to get through this without a phlegm fest. Uh, I'll do my best. But I'm going to, what I found is that, if I, like last night, whenever I started to get animated and excited, I, it triggered the coughing reflex. So I'm going to try to stay subdued this morning. <laughs> And it's really going to be hard because this stuff I'm going to be talking on is so important, and I think it's just so cool. Uh, but, uh, and then uh, also, can I just get like, some people will say, as you're listening to me, you'll be doubling by praying for me? Can I get, show, show me your hands. If you just cover me in prayer, listen to the sermon, but you also have an assignment now. Keep me covered uh, that, 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 that I can get through this thing. And if I don't make it to the second service, uh, I, I bless you guys. Sorry, I couldn't be there in person. I'm with you in spirit. But uh, on the other hand, if I can make it the next service, this was a unnecessary announcement. So here's the thing, Dan. Oh, settle down, Greg. Dan, uh, last we talked about some things that we're not supposed to trust God for. Probably the first time you ever heard a sermon like that. Don't trust God for this. But uh, he was right because God has empowered us to do some things on our own, and he expects us to do it. But there's some other things, as Dan pointed out, that that God absolutely, that we have to trust God for. Absolutely. And um, as we're wrapping up this encouragement series that we've been on, I want to talk about that. Now, the the most important thing that we always have to trust God for, we talk about this all the time around here, is to trust that God is as beautiful as, as God is revealed to be in the person of Jesus Christ, and especially in Christ crucified. That the cross reveals everything you need to know about God, yourself, and everybody else. We need to trust God for that every day. But the second most important thing that I think we have to trust God for is what I'm going to talk about this morning. It's something that I I promise you, I guarantee you, that if we get on the inside of this truth, it can't help but encourage us. Regardless of the situation that you're in, circumstances, however dark it may be, however painful it may be, it may be just terrible, but this word of encouragement always holds true if we get on the inside of this. The important question is, are we willing to do what it takes to get on the inside of this uh, belief? So would you like to know what this infallibly encouraging belief is? Good. Because I'm going to tell you, but in this message, I'm also going to teach a little patience by making you wait for it. (laughs) This is build up the hunger. Uh, I I won't get to it to probably about 20 minutes into this message. Uh, Because here's the thing. I felt like I need to set up this message by Uh, talking about what it means to get on the inside of something, to get on the inside of a truth or a belief. What does that mean? And I thought it was going to be a short little prelude, you know, five minutes or something. But as I was working on this, I I really felt like the Spirit was telling me to slow down and go deeper because this is really important. And as I was kind of doing that, um, I I began to see things more clearly than I had before, and and I began to see why I felt like God wanted me to hover on this because of its importance. It was like God was saying, you can't give the punchline, the encouraging punchline, until unless people can internalize that punch. It won't have the encouraging punch it's supposed to have unless they're internalizing it. So we have to talk about what it means to internalize a belief. And it ended up being a good portion of the sermon, uh, and that's just the way it is. So uh, let, I, let's start by turning to John, uh, third, third epistle of John. Two verses that he gives us here. He says this. I was overjoyed when some of the friends arrived and testified to your faithfulness to the truth. Faithfulness to the truth. Namely, how you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than this, to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Now, notice that John isn't impressed because they believe. He doesn't say, oh, you're getting so many believers, so many wonderful believers. What he's overjoyed about is that they don't merely believe they're walking in the truth. They're living in the truth. So the question I want to ask is, what's the difference between believing something's true and living in that truth? And you might think, well, it, that just means that your life conforms to the truth. You're, you're behaving right. And that's true, but I, we're going to see here this morning that it goes, this distinction goes a whole lot deeper than that. C.S. Lewis, in this essay um, called Reflections in a Shed," is found in the book God in the Dock and um, in a collection of essays. and it's, it, I've always had a fondness for that tome because God, that, that God used that book and, and some other things to bring me back to faith after I lost my faith my freshman year in college. And that's why C.S. Lewis has always been one of my heroes. Um, but in, in this essay, he starts to get at this distinction between believing and living. Though that's not at the point of the message, but it applies to this. Uh, he talks about how he was in this tool shed. And it was all dark. And the only thing that you can see there's a beam of light coming in from this cranny or this fissure at the top of the door of this tool shed. And at first, C.S. Lewis looked at that beam of light, and really he couldn't see much else in the tool shed at all. He just saw particles dancing in that sunlight. But then he stepped into this light and looked along its path going outside, and it changed everything. Here's, Here's what he writes. He says, Instantly, the whole previous picture vanished. <clears throat> I saw no tool shed and above all, no beam. Instead, I saw framed in the, irre- in the irregular cranny at the top of the door green leaves moving on the branches of a tree outside, and beyond that, 90 some million miles away, the sun. Now, listen to this. Looking along the beam and looking at the beam are very different experiences. It's one thing to look at something. It's another thing to look at it from the outside looking in. It's very different to be looking at it from the inside looking out, going along the path of that light to look on the outside. Two very different experiences. So here, here's my rendition of one of his illustrations to get a handle on the difference between looking at and looking along, okay? So imagine a, a, a young couple, and they fall in love. And, and, and they're having the kind of euphoric experience that you have sometimes when you fall in love. Uh, You know, everything's different for them. Maybe some of you young folks are falling in love right now, or maybe you have recently, or maybe some of your older folks are falling in love. That can happen to us too, right? Uh, You go through that that euphoric experience and and whatnot. Now, don't feel too bad if you've never had that experience because our culture kind of makes this the true love, and it's the goal of everything, and your life is empty until you get this, and it will complete you and all that other stuff. (laughs) Well, And and see, it's... it's, it's, uh, it's a nice buzz, but it lasts for maybe a month, two months, three months tops. All right, so so you haven't missed all that much, but but it is wonderful when you're on this side of it. So some of you may have to really stretch for this, but try to remember what that was like back then, and and the the, the kind of the confusion, the fog you're in, and and the giddiness you have. You know, and it seems like the world just looks different, doesn't it? It's like the it's like the sky just seems bluer. The world seems newer and. Uh, truths seem truer, and your brain's are a skewer, but your problems are getting fewer, and the sun's shining brighter, and your smile keeps getting wider, and her teeth look lighter, and you're, you're feeling lighter, and, but your, your breathing's getting tighter when you come alongside her, and you pull that all night of drinking warmed-up apple cider. But that's when you know. That's when you know. You got to lose yourself to music in the moment. You got to own it. Do not let it go don't miss a shot. Your chance to blow this opportunity comes once in a lifetime. Yo, that's what falling in love is all about. (laughs) I just made that up. Spontaneously, that last part especially. But it's that wonderful feeling, man. This is it. I finally found the one. And da, 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 da. So this couple, they're enjoying their little love, buzz, bliss. And and then some romance-busting biologist comes along real real killjoy. He says, you kids, I know you think you discovered this reality and all this stuff, but you're just, you're getting high on chemicals is what's happening. Your brain, your brain is just secreting all this dopamine and that's what's getting you giddy and high and euphoric and all that other kind of stuff. And the dopamine is messing with your testosterone, which is why you're feeling kind of frisky and your heart rate's up and you're sweating a little bit more and you have this desire to aggressively pursue one another and you're willing to do really stupid, crazy things to do that. Same testosterone that makes you want to annihilate in a competition that gets in the way. And on top of that, you got this norepinephrine that's, that, that's, that causes your brain to hyperfocus, become hyper-vigilant. So you, you notice every detail about each other, and you remember every detail about each other, and you can't stop thinking about every detail about each other, even though your person never notices details and doesn't remember anything. But now, all of a sudden, you can't get them off, off your... But, but it's, it's, not, it's, it's not like all the details. It's just the details that you want to see because that, that norepinephrine causes you to hyperfocus. So your bias confirmation is on hyperdrive, on steroids. And so you only notice what would increase the dopamine buzz that's going on because you're like a junkie that's trying to keep it up there. And, and, and so you notice the good stuff and you delete the bad stuff, which is why the biologists would tell you, never make a decision when you're in a state of falling in love. It's a bad thing. You're prefrontal cortex is not operating the way it should. Basically, the biologist is saying, you kids are on drugs. And the biologist is right. <clears throat> she said Madonna. Calm down, Greg. Right? No, so the biologist is right. But see, everything the biologist is saying is true. But the biologist is looking at love from the outside looking in. right? Just like Lewis looked at the beam from the outside looking in. But these kids are Adults, or whoever they are, falling madly in love, they're on the inside of this, and they're experiencing it. And they're looking along the beam of love that's shining on them, and they're seeing everything else in the light of that love. They look at each other differently. Uh, They look at the world differently. The sky is bluer, and everything seems newer, and you've heard it before. So... So the way Lewis stepped into the light and looked along that beam of light to look at this outside world—that's where these these kids are. This, this couple is falling in love. And see, no amount of looking at will ever get you to be able to look along. The biologists could tell you what's going on in their brains, but all that information wouldn't help one bit to help that biologist understand what it's like to experience that when you're on the inside. Of the, you, so you can't access that. You can't get at that by looking at it. There's some realities that you can only know by being on the inside of them. Uh, C.S. Lewis's point was that it's about the limitations of science. There are realities that science just can't access, because science can only look at stuff. Uh, it can't get on the inside of stuff. That's why a lot of atheistic scientists who, who think that science defines all of reality they regard all of these subjective experiences as being sort of an illusion, a byproduct of, of, of other things that are going on, nothing more than that. But, but Lewis's point was that they just can't access this, because some realities you can't get at by looking at them, you've got to get on the inside of them. A neuroscientist could tell you, theoretically anyways, everything that's going on in your mind when you're listening to your favorite music and you're just taking journeys with your favorite music. Oh, yeah, here's, here, here's the parts of your brain that are being activated, stimulated, blah, 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 blah. But all that information could be exhaustive. It wouldn't give that neuroscientist one clue what it's like to be you enjoying this music. That experience goes beyond this and can't be accessed except by being on the inside of things. In fact, like the most important realities in life are, are realities that you can't, you can't access from the outside. You can't just look at them. You can believe all the truth in the world. But see, believing is a way... <clears throat> of looking at something. You're evaluating it. It's out here. Do I believe that or not? I suppose I do. You're looking at it. But, but see, looking at it won't get you on the inside of it. Won't, what we need, if you want to really know the depth of the meaning of a truth, and if you want to know the transforming power of a truth, we've got to stop looking at it, merely looking at it, and step inside of it, and look along it, and see everything else. We have to internalize it, so that we see everything else in the light of this truth. It becomes part of our, 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 our automatic thinking, our, the, 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 our, our thought pilot. In other words, to, to get on the inside of a truth, you've got to let the truth get on the inside of you. And the, the goal has got to be to make it part of what, what psychologists call our mental narrative. We all live in a mental narrative. It's a story we tell ourselves moment by moment to make sense out of the world around us. It's how we interpret the world around us. It's our mental narrative. It's comprised of all the core beliefs and convictions that, that we've internalized, that we are in inside of, that, that are deep down there. It consists of all of our core assumptions and priorities and beliefs and convictions. You see, we don't even know that it's the grid that we, that we use to interpret the world, but we don't usually even know that it's there because the fish doesn't notice the water that it's swimming in. It, it's, it, it's, so, it's too close to us. We're on the inside of it, and so... so we, we, it, Our worldview or our our mental narrative, it's it's what you think when you don't think about what you're thinking. It's what you think when you don't think about what... It's your autopilot. It's automatic. It's how you've been conditioned to interpret the world. Now, here's the thing, and this is just the challenge that I just see is so huge right now. But the challenge is this. We don't initially choose our mental narrative. Uh, It chooses us. Uh, We assimilate it as we're... We're being raised in the culture. It's handed to us. So we don't come to the Bible with a blank slate. No, we all come with a grid. uh, And and, and things to process in that. And if you've been raised in Western culture, just conditioned by Western culture, America or some other secular Western state, well, then you're automatically... Our autopilot, we've been given a, a secular mental narrative. A secular mental narrative. The story we tell ourselves moment by moment is a story... That doesn't include God or Jesus or God becoming a human being and dying on the cross. And It doesn't include the truth that the cross changes everything for everybody. It doesn't include the truth that the Spirit of God is still with us and wants to guide our steps day by day. It doesn't include the truth that we're part of a never-ending story and we have a glorious future ahead of us. The secular worldview just leaves all that out because in the secular worldview, the, thing, the only thing that you can identify as really real is what you can sense. It's physical. It's tangible so everything else gets deleted. Now, we still believe the truths that are revealed in Scripture and the truth as it's found in Jesus Christ. We believe that. But to the degree that we're conditioned by this secular worldview, and if you haven't done intentional brain discipleship to push back on the worldview, you are to some degree conditioned by it. And, and to the degree that you're conditioned by that, um, the, the, the beliefs will, just, will always be external to you. You'll be looking at them. In fact, to the degree that you're in in this materialistic, secular narrative, you can only look at your beliefs. Because if you were on the inside of those beliefs, you wouldn't be on the inside of of the beliefs that are causing you to only look at your beliefs. See how that works? And so in fact, if if you're really influenced by this secular uh, worldview, and you don't know it, because it's the water we swim in, and we're all infected to some degree, and this isn't an indicting thing at all. I'm just naming something here. It's something we are all up against here. And, and it, it, if you're significantly influenced by this, it could be the case that not only do you look, just look at your beliefs, but you don't have any other concept of what beliefs are supposed to do. Uh, it, it's foreign to you. It doesn't occur to you that you, could, that you would have to do or need to do or want to do anything more than just believe them. Beliefs are just something that you believe. And, 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 and so the idea of getting on inside of it is just foreign to you. It's why for a lot of people, a lot of Western folks anyways, um, Christianity is simply a bunch of beliefs and a bunch of rules about what you're supposed to do that's, that's it and the idea that there's supposed to be a reality to it let alone a transforming reality to it let alone something that's supposed to completely change the way you are in the world and the way you interpret the world and experience the world that is completely foreign to them so we, we end up believing the kingdom narrative but we live in to some degree we live in a secular narrative uh, you know it explains a lot um, for example, a recent poll showed that uh, when asked by a pollster, "What religious affiliation are you?" about 79 percent of Americans say Christian. But if you assess their lives, uh, what they value, what their priorities are, you know what they spend their money on, time on and think, whatever For it, it, the majority of them it looks like about 75 to 80 percent it's not very different from what is generally shared in the culture, in terms of what we would do if we could get away with it and never get caught. Or I mean, just, oh, there's always questions they ask, but because see, here's the thing: it, it's not your beliefs that determine what how you feel about things and what you're motivated to do and how you live in the world. Your beliefs, your conscious beliefs, don't do that. What drives that is your mental narrative, what you think when you don't think about what you're thinking about. And 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 so so they believe these things, but they they live very differently. Or or there's this. Uh, most of course, everyone who would say they're a Christian, I assume, believes that they're going to live forever, right? That there's there's the afterlife. But all indications are that that belief doesn't impact their life at all. Uh, they scramble just as much as everybody else to grab their best life now. Because while they believe theoretically that there's life after death, what, what's real to them, is what feels to, real to them, is that this life is all there is. And, and they, they cling to their stuff as much as everybody else clings. Mine. And they, because you want to grab your best life now. You want to own it. It's here. It's, it feels like this is all there, there really is. And, and so evangelical Christians give about 3% of their income away. 97 goes uh, to ourselves. And, and we're proud of the fact that that's about a half a percentage point higher than the average population. But it doesn't reflect a person who really believes that you're gonna live forever, or we cling to our lives. Uh, because this is, it feels like this life is all there is. And so, so this is why for a lot of Christians, and I dare say the majority in the West, the idea that we should actually love an enemy who's life-threatening life our lives, that we should love them rather than kill them if necessary to protect ourselves, that sounds ludicrous insane. Because it feels to them like this is all there is. Uh, They're not living in a longer narrative. They're living in a narrative that ends with death. And so you protect this. And yes, we believe in Jesus, but those words just go in one ear and out the other because it doesn't conform to the secular narrative that the people are living in. Uh, I think the most important task, right now I'm saying it, I feel like the most important task that we've got as disciples in the West is to change that fact. Our fundamental goal, folks, has got to be to stop looking at our beliefs and step inside them to look along those beliefs at everything else. Stop merely believing truths and, and internalize those truths inside of us. Start living that truth, thinking that truth, reading that truth. The goal has got to be... <coughs> Sorry. <coughs> Sorry. Um, simmer down, Greg. Okay, can you give me a Kleenex? I'm, it's hot up here. Or maybe i got a fear. I don't know. But um, the, the goal has got to be to take this truth and get it to be part of the way we talk to ourselves moment by moment throughout the day, the way we automatically respond and experience and look at and interpret the world around us. Oh, thank you so much, Sharish. You did a great job this morning, I want to tell you that. Didn't you do great? She was fantastic. That yeah, was fantastic. Oh, fantastic. We're blessed. No, our goal has got to be to stop merely believing that and start... Stepping into it. Paul gives us a little direction on how to begin to do this. This passage we look at quite a bit around here, so I don't need to spend a lot of time on it. But, but here's what he says. This is the, there's like two steps I want to give to this about in, how to internalize a belief. Um, he, Romans 12, he says, Don't be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world or this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So he says, don't be conformed to this world. The word he uses there is su-schema-tidzo. Uh, it's a combination of the prefix su, which means alongside of. And then schema-tidzo, you can see the word schema in that. Uh, it refers to a pattern or a matrix, a scheme. Uh, it, it's a, the, a fundamental structure that holds things together. And so the pattern of this world is sort of the basic assumptions, the structure, the, the ideas that... that In the world, help people make sense out of the world. It's it's what the world means to them. It's how you interpret the world. So what Paul (coughs) is saying here is don't let the way the pattern of your mind conform to the world's pattern. Don't let the way you make sense out of things be the same as the way the world makes sense out of things. Don't let your interpretive grid be the same as the world's interpretive grid. Don't let your assumptions be the same as the world's assumptions. Instead, he says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And the idea of renewal of your mind means you make new again and again and again. You wash it. It's like washing something again and again and again. You renew this, and that's how you are transformed. And then Paul is saying that to the degree that we are transformed by the renewing of our mind, to the degree that our, our grid lines up with the, with, with the truth, and we're conformed to the image of Christ, and we're bringing thoughts captive to Christ, to the degree that that is true, then we can discern the will of God. The word discern there is dokamazo and it has the connotation of experience for yourself or prove for yourself. Some translations even have it that way. Because see, now you're stepping into the inside of a, of, a, of a belief. You're taking this item of faith, this thing you believe, but as you're transformed by the renewing of your mind, you're starting to step into it. So you start to experience it for yourself. And now, he's saying, now you, 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 maybe you were looking at the will of God before, but now you're stepping into it. So now you're beginning to experience for yourself what is good and acceptable and perfect. Because God's will is always good, acceptable, and perfect. You following what I'm saying here? It's about stepping into uh, the truth. This is why there's so much emphasis in the New Testament. <clears throat> to, to, uh, about mind discipleship. So many verses tell us, instruct us how to think. Uh, Philippians 4.8, whatever is good, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, etc., etc., think on those things. Which means if it's not true, if it's not good, if it's not honorable, put it out of your mind. Which means you've got to be paying attention to what's going on in your mind. You have to be a mind detective. It's the most fundamental act of discipleship. If this isn't true and edifying and and it doesn't conform to the truth that you've revealed in Scripture, you just set that aside and turn your mind to what is true and good and honorable and noble. Or or, or 2 Corinthians 10, he says, Bring every thought captive to Christ. Every thought. And we think a lot of thoughts, folks. And bring every thought captive to Christ. To make it all conform to Christ. It requires brain vigilance, paying attention to our brains. And to the degree that we do that, we experience for ourselves that reality. That's stepping in. Now you're not looking at the belief, you're looking along the belief at everything else. And seeing everything else in the light of that belief. Now, here's the second point of this, however, and this is extremely important. It's not just about taking a, 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 a verse and reciting it over and over again. Or taking some facts and reciting it over and over again. Though that isn't bad to do, it's good to do, but... So often, that kind of reciting is still looking at something. For a belief to really get on the inside of us and us to get on the inside of it, for it to really begin internal, it's got to transform our imaginations. The way we imagine the world. See, we've been conditioned to imagine the world as though it was not true that it was created by God and sustained by God, and God didn't become a human being and die, and that didn't change everything, et cetera, et cetera. We believe differently, but we, we imagine the world and experience the world as though many of those things weren't true. What needs to be transformed is the as though. We need our imagination to to see the world as though it was true. What does the world look like? What do you look like? What do other people look like? When when you're looking at them as though it actually was true that Jesus' death on the cross changed everything, as though they had unsurpassable worth, etc., etc., etc. That is what gets us on the inside of things, on the inside of the truth. And this is just what it means to, to have faith, what it means to have faith. So here's a verse that I can't seem to stay away from for more than two months at a time because it's so foundational, but it's Hebrews 11. And if you've been here for any length of time, you've heard what I've said about this, but it's important renewal. Uh, look at, he says, faith is the substantiating, where there is hypostasis, <clears throat> the substantiating of things hoped for, <clears throat> the conviction of things not yet seen. Here's what he's saying. Faith is you take something you hope for, something you believe to be true, something you think is God's will. You're having faith for this. Well, to have faith for this means you substantiate it. What What does that mean, substantiate? It means you make it like a substance. It means you envision it concretely, vividly, as though it had already happened. Faith is a vision. And the more concrete that vision is, the more it creates in us a conviction, where there's a leg cost, a, a conviction or an assurance that it is so. And that assurance that it is so is what motivates us to move in the direction to make it so. So faith is, a, is about seeing a future, you believe to be God's will, as a substantial reality. It creates in us a conviction that it will be so, and it motivates us to like, get hungry for it. Yes, I want that. We, we, it, it pushes us in that direction. Uh, it, it, it's about a vision. Um, it's why all, all the folks, you know, all throughout Hebrews 11, he, he gives examples of people of, of great faith. And he says about them that they saw a heavenly city, and they were all, in their own way, marching towards this heavenly city. The world wasn't worthy of them, even though the world would usually put them to death, because they wouldn't conform to the ways of the world. But what changed them was this vision. It wasn't a vision of an actual physical city, and they didn't just merely believe that there was a city, because God told them, hey, there's a city when you die, by and by. It wasn't just that. That wouldn't have changed the way they live and the way they interpret the world. No. They had a vision. And, 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 and that vision led them in a different direction, to live contrary to the world. That's what faith is. These folks didn't merely look at their belief. They stepped into it, and they looked along the, their belief. That's the difference between living the truth and just merely believing the truth. When, 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 when we're, to the degree that we're, we're conditioned by this secular narrative, and we've internalized that without knowing it, but to that degree, um, we, we can only look at. We can, it, 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 we can never get on the inside of it. And to that degree, it will feel like our, our, our beliefs are not real, like there's, there's something lacking in them. We need to get on the inside of them, look along their light, and look at everything else. And so it's about renewing our mind, but renewing it with our imagination. That's why I encourage folks to don't just be telling yourself the truth, but you need to be seeing it. And here's the thing, We're, we, are <clears throat> we are neurologically wired neurologically wired. The author of Hebrews didn't know this, but we're wired so that our brain, the the more vivid and the more concrete, the more lifelike and real-like a a, a vision is, the more our brain identifies it as real, and the more impact it has on us emotionally, and therefore the more it directs our behavior. The author, he's just giving you a prescription of how we actually work. If you want to move in a certain direction, it's about seeing it vividly. And so we're washing our brains with a new imagination over and over again. What do you look like when, when, when you are fully manifesting the, the, the power of God in you, when you're living in your true identity? Uh, how do you view people differently? If we can't imagine it, we'll never actually do it because everything originates in the imagination. We need to create, folks, a sanctified imagination. In the church throughout history, it's called the imagination, a, a sanctified imagination. It calls it the inner sanctum, where the things of God become concrete, where, where the truths become incarnate, where we can experience them and they have an impacting force on us. The truth is, folks, it's not what we know that changes us. Information never leads to transformation in and of itself. You can have all the information in the world, and it won't do a thing for you. Why? Because the information is looking at, while you are living in a different matrix, a different uh, worldview, a different narrative. Um, yeah, it, it, it's, it's, it's got to change. So that's the difference between faith and belief, or the difference between looking at and looking along. And having laid that foundation, are you ready now for the, the, the infallibly encouraging truth? Yes. Okay, now we're ready for it. It's infallibly encouraging. Infallibly because it doesn't matter what, what uh, the circumstances are. This applies. I could quote a lot of verses that, that reflect this, but I just chose Romans 8.18. Listen to this. It's, it's one of the craziest verses in the Bible. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time... Are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed in us. That's a that's a cra- that's a wild wild thing to say. So here's here's what Paul is saying. And, and let it be as outlandish as it will initially seem. So it, 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 we want to compare we want to compare uh, the sufferings of this world with the glory that God has in store for us. So it's like you know we want to compare them on a scale. This is like a scale. Pretend it's a scale. I have no idea how to draw a scale. But, okay, so we don't want to weigh them. What Paul is saying, and I'm just wasting a lot of paper here. I should have drawn a Sorry, I apologize to the trees. Um, so what Paul is saying here is this. If we were to consider that, it would look like this. Here is the glory, the weight of glory that God is in store for us. That is the weight of glory. That, that, that's what we're going to be experiencing someday. If you were to try to counterbalance that with the sufferings of the world... It wouldn't nudge the scale one iota it's incomparable it's not on the same plane it would not move the scale any more than a speck of dust would now think about this let's start putting things on that scale let's try to tip it a little bit let's get it at least off the ground the holocaust every child kidnapping Every child rape every child torture every child murder uh, every every person in history I've ever died of radiation poisoning, and 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 all the murders, all the wars, all the bloodshed, all the tears, the sorrow, the heartache throughout history. Think about this: it's, the suffering of the world is like unimaginably huge. Put it all on there; it doesn't move a speck. I I, I can't get my mind around that. I can't. Now you may, maybe you're thinking, well, Paul, like he was a Pollyanna Christian, like oh, everything is the world's a beautiful place, everything's wonderful, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's a beautiful place. Uh, but see, Paul, he, he knew what he was talking about. He suffered a lot. In fact, a few verses after this, uh, this few, he, he talks about how the whole creation is groaning with his labor pains, like a woman in labor. And all the women are here like, are thinking, yeah, like he knew what that was like. But go, work with him here. So he, the whole creation is like, Err! and then he says, We too are part of this growing creation, longing for the redemption. To happen, so he doesn't minimize the pain of stuff at all. No, th- th- this world is really a suckville sometimes. It's enormous pain, unimaginable pain. But can you imagine a reality which is so glorious that even this, even this terrible situation, suffering, all of that, it doesn't even tip the scales. Try to. I would, be, I would be just astounded that you could break even on this deal. It will be worth it. But Paul is saying, no, it's going to have to be worth it. It's going to be more than worth it. It's going, to be, it's going to outshine it completely. It just tells me that heaven's got to be so unimaginably beautiful, we can't even begin to speak it. Now, that's hard to believe, but if we can bring ourselves to believe that if God said it, and I, I've got good reason to think that Paul and Jesus and the rest of the New Testament authors <laughs> we're wrong about this. I think they're, I've they <laughs> got a reason to think that they're telling the truth. And, and, and it just tells me that it's got to be beyond anything we can imagine. To believe is hard enough, but the question is, is, can we get on the inside of that belief? Can we wear that belief? Can we look along the light of that belief and see everything else in light of that belief? Uh, it, can, can we let it form our imaginations so that we actually naturally think about ourselves as beings who are going to live forever? Can we we see the whole world in that light? Can we see it vividly? Now, maybe you're going to say, well, how do you imagine? You just said it was unimaginable. How do you imagine it? And the answer is you can't. But what you can do is imagine as far in that direction as you possibly can. What's the most glorious scene you can think of? And now try to intensify that and know that you're just taking baby steps in the right direction. (laughs) Taking baby steps in the right direction. But see, it makes a world of difference whether you're living in a narrative that, 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 that never ends and that gets glorious or whether you're living in a narrative that ends with death. It makes a world of difference. You interpret the world very, very differently if you get on the inside of this belief that uh, you live forever and ever. Let it get on the inside. When it's on the inside, see, what, what happens? Your brain begins to identify that as real. It's not just a, a, a belief that you take out of your pocket once in a while and look at. Oh, do I believe in life after death? Oh, I guess I do. <clears throat> No, it, it becomes, your brain identifies it as real. And then that begins to impact you, begins to change you. And when, this, when you get on the inside of this belief, you will find that you just don't need to scramble so much to try to have your best life now. You'll find that you don't need to cling to stuff so much because easy come, easy go. you find that you don't need to cling to your own life, which empowers you to, to, to uh, live as a child of God and respond to, to enemies in love rather than retaliation. It, it empowers you, to, it, it, you lose your fear of death. Because see, if you're living in a secular narrative and you have a theoretical belief that you live, there's life after death, but what feels real to you is that it's just this world, what you can sense. And so death feels like you're trading in a reality for an unknown, and that's terrifying. But it shouldn't be an unknown. It should be something we're living in and, and, and seeing and process. It's part of our imagination. It also has this fortunate effect, and that is that you see the disappointments and the problems of life quite differently when you're living in a never-ending narrative as opposed to a finite narrative. Here's, the, here's a little formula. The size of your problem will be the inverse in proportion to the size of the frame that you look at your problems with. So if you if, if, Oh, I'm really wasting tre- uh, you know, I, I, well, I, Sorry. Sorry. I'll, I'll try better. Okay, uh, so. What was I going to say here? Uh, Oh yeah, yeah. So if if this is a problem, I've also, this whole message has been kind of a sweet coding buzz, so I should have said that up front, I suppose. So here's a, I always told you I'd be honest with you. So if this is your problem and this is your frame of reference, it's like, whoa, that is a huge problem. Um, It's taking up so much space. But if you've got a Thing like this, a frame of reference that big, that same size problem is going to be look relatively small. You've seen optical illusions like this, haven't you, where it's like, That's, that can't be the same size, but it is. The frame of reference is different. This is why, like, your child, when Johnny rips off Tanya's doll's arm, her favorite doll, it's a nuclear Meltdowns, Chernobyl all over again. It's apocalyptic. This three year old, this is the end of the world because Adele is so precious to her. But hopefully, you have an adult perspective that can see it in the broader scheme of things that this is a pretty small thing. Well, so also, if, you've, if you're living this finite narrative, this disappointment here is huge because this is, it feels like this is all there is. I just, one life I've got, I just blew it. You only got one shot. Do not miss your chance to blow. This opportunity comes once in a lifetime, yo. And so you just got to grab onto it. And it it will overwhelm you. But can you imagine, imagine this in the context of a coming reality that is so glorious that it will render this inconsequential? Or at least can you start imagining in that direction? It becomes more manageable. The size of your frame of reference determines the size of the problems. So I want to end with coming full circles. Sandra started this whole series off. Five weeks ago, whenever it was, Uh, but talking about her brother, Jerry. And that was such a powerful message. That was just so vulnerable and honest. I I just so love that message. But she talked about Jerry. You may recall Jerry, her brother, is a 59 or 57 year old guy, something like that. But he's. He was athletic, he was passionate about life, he was a competitive pro tennis guy and ran marathons and could water ski barefoot and loved to play with the grandkids and did a lot of great stuff in this world and mentored kids and all this stuff. And then in 2016, he contracts Complexual Regional Pain Syndrome, where your brain just gets messed up and it starts to interpret normal neural signals from your nervous system. It it interprets them as pain. And for whatever reasons. And it can be excruciating pain. Sandra wasn't exaggerating when she talked about the pain of this thing. He developed it in his leg and his, his foot. And it's just excruciating. I did a little reading on this, and there's a spectrum, of course, but in the more extreme cases, oh, the descriptions are just... One person described their shoulder pain as, as a, a knife going into their shoulder, but the initial pain of the knife never lessens. It never diminishes, and it never stops. 24-7, you're being stabbed in the shoulder, and Jerry's being stabbed in the leg, and it means, I mean, if, if you're being stabbed, it's hard to think about anything else, and it, you, he's found it almost impossible to sleep for the last three and a half years, and that begins to wear on your mental psyche and, and your mental health, and it tears you down, and the loss of all this stuff that you used to love to do, it, 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 they call it the suicide disease for a reason. Imagine going the rest of your life with unrelenting pain. And the thing is, they look to see what's wrong, and they don't find anything because there's nothing wrong except in the brain. So they can't do anything about it. Or at least in the case of Jerry, they can't find anything that they can do about it. And Sandra was right. When, when you initially meet a person or, or engage with a person like this, the only appropriate kingdom response initially is to, just, is to enter into solidarity with them and try to feel what they feel so that at least they don't feel so alone in what they're feeling. And, and, and don't fix anything. Whatever is said, whatever is done, however ugly, however blasphemous, however hateful, you just let them be. <laughs> let them be as they are and, and, and be with them. But there comes a time where the person's a believer. There can come a time, and, and the afflicted and the, the, the have to tell you what the time is, not you. They get to, but you have to discern it. But there comes time and time when they need to hear the one encouraging word that can always be said in all circumstances, and that is, it won't always be like this. It won't always be like this. And maybe that's the only lifeline you've got, but you've got that. Everything else is dark. Nothing else is going to be there. You're in a darkness that's beyond what you could ever imagine, and you don't see any light, and you've lost all hope. But there is this one truth, this one word, this one encouraging thing. It can't help but encourage you. It won't always be like this. In fact, it will be unimaginably better. Um, it's not that the good news. Isn't just that will, your suffering will come to an end, but it's not even that, 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 that your suffering will be worth it. It's this that can you imagine a, a suffering? And I would say this to Jerry right now. You're, in fact, I, he knows I was going to talk about this. Right now, you're like I can't imagine. I can't get on the side of that. It's just, it's too terrible. I I can't. It's living like that. It is the ultimate worst case scenario. But it's, this still holds true. I promise you on the authority of Jesus that this is temporary. Your, your life will go on forever, but your pain will not go on forever. And I can promise you on the authority of God's word that someday you are going to ski again better than you've ever skied and you're going to run faster than you ever ran and you you play with the kids more vigorously than you ever played. As Andrew talked about how he was Tigger and Tigger's tail got broken, but he's going to get a springier t- tail than he ever dreamed of having. And the eye hasn't seen and the ear hasn't heard and it's never entered into our imagination the things which God has in store for those of us who love him. So, the question would be can you begin to dream a dream in the midst of the pain and the darkness and start to see that? Try to envision that. What, is, what does the best case scenario look like? What is, the, best case, what is the, the, the most fulfilling, most beautiful, most gorgeous, most magnificent, most joyous, most complete, most shalom kind of in, in picture you can envision? And it's actually a kind of an exercise. You exercise a muscle here. We're so not used to dreaming beautiful dreams that people a lot of times initially have trouble doing it. But I said this to a friend recently who just found out that he's got possibly six months to live and he's having trouble envisioning the future. And I just said, find find the most beautiful time in your life. And this is an exercise I encourage you all to do because we've got to be preparing for eternity because preparing for eternity simply means living in the faith that we live for eternity and that affects how we live now. And so find the, the, the experience that where you felt most, where your well being was at its pinnacle. And now, in your imagination, ask what, what could I add on to that? Ask the Spirit to help you. What could I add on to intensify that feeling? And keep moving in that direction. What would make it more beautiful? If Jesus was there, that would make it more beautiful. Include Jesus. And, and if, if there's no starving children, that would make it more beautiful. Man, some represent that somehow. And if there's no more wars and people are actually getting along and there wasn't any more racism, that would be beautiful. And we'll include that in the picture. Just let the spirit build this thing. And let your heart be overwhelmed with that. And folks, that's when you begin to live on the inside of it. And that's what begins to change the way you think about the world and the way you live in the world. I take trips to heaven at least three, four times a week because uh, it 's fun, I like getting a break from this world and thinking about that don 't wait till you die to cash in on your inheritance. Go visit the place now regularly and watch how it changes you uh, it 's not about looking at the belief it 's about looking along the belief. Would you stand? I like to ask <laughs> the, um, uh, uh, the prayer folks to come up, for, come up here and uh, if you have any need that could use prayer please come up here and pray with these folks they'd love to do that with you and if you're here this morning and are not a surrendered follower of Jesus but you want to, you're open to considering it come up here and talk to these folks they'd love to explain to you what that's about as we leave this place can we do it as a people who are committed to being disciples of our mind to being disciplined in our mind to pay attention to our mind and to have our minds conform to the, to the truth as found in Jesus Christ if you're in agreement with that say amen, amen. go out and love on your neighbors God bless